I'm Chris French and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 416. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. See Stock. Hello! Hey son, hey son. How good to have all the three of us together again. It's been a couple of <laughs> <Yes>. episodes. <laughs> it's becoming pretty rare, yeah. <laughs> um, which I'm very sorry about. It's not intentional. I would love to be here for all the recordings, but uh, life gets in the way. Yeah, yeah, you were here for the last one, so don't worry. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Life gets in the way for me too, but that's yes. what happens. <laughs> I'm still guilty as charged. But this week, you will not hear so much from the three of us, dear listeners, because we have an interview this week. Isn't that right, Andres? Yes, and uh, I'm pretty sure that, at least when it comes to my case, he's much more fun to listen to than I am. (laughs) So uh, I can't wait to share this uh, interview with everyone, because it's with Chris French, Professor Chris French, whom a lot of our listeners will probably know already. Mm. We have had him on the show before. He does research, and he, he has done a lot of research, into the psychology of weird shit. Coincidentally... This is the title of the book that is coming out that he <laughs> he, he has written. <laughs> yeah, it's a great title. And on this occasion, we did an interview with him. It's quite a long interview. I think without further ado, we should just jump right into yes. it. Yeah. Every now and then, we interview someone whose work is of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Today, our guest is Christopher French, Emeritus Professor and Head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at the Department of Psychology, Goldsmith, University of London. He is a well-known figure in the skeptics movement and a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry as well. He is also a former editor-in-chief of the Skeptic magazine, a science communicator, and he will be among the speakers at the upcoming European Skeptics Congress in Lyon, France, between the 30th of May and the 2nd of June. His latest book, The Science of Weird Shit, is coming out on the 19th of March, and on this occasion we welcome him back to the show. So, Chris, welcome again. It's been a long time. <laughs> Very good to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you nice again. to be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's always great to meet you. It's always great to talk to you. We love having a chat with you. And I I love listening to your talk. So I can't wait for you to give yet another one at um, the European Skeptics Congress. It's It's really been a while since we had you on the show. It's difficult to imagine. But there might be a couple of people who don't know what you do and how you ended up doing what you do. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up as a skeptic investigating the paranormal, um, which is a fascinating thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, as probably quite a lot of people do know by now, 
I'm one of those people, kind of like Sue Blackmore, who started off as a believer. And mm. it wasn't really until when I was doing my PhD, which was in a completely different area, that someone recommended a particular book to me. That book was by James Alcock. It was called Parapsychology, Science or Magic. And it was reading that book that basically opened my eyes to the wonderful world of scepticism. And really, uh, from there, it was really kind of pretty much a hobby, my interest in scepticism. I kind of hadn't heard of the Skeptical Inquirer magazine before then, or, you know, hadn't really heard, hadn't heard of James Randi, hadn't read any of his books, etc., etc. And I kind of got into it all very enthusiastically, but very much as a hobby initially. It wasn't really until I started at Goldsmiths back in 1685, sorry, 1985, (laughs) it just feels like 1685, um, when I I put on a couple of lectures about parapsychology, this time from a very sceptical perspective, and then some 10 years later realised that I could put on a whole final year option, which I initially called Psychology, Parapsychology and Pseudoscience. And also I'd gradually been doing kind of one or two little studies here and there in the area of what I now call anomalistic psychology. Initially, my interest in this area was kind of tolerated but not encouraged. (laughs) It was not seen as being very respectable. So I had uh, quite a number of years where I was kind of had a twin track approach in my research. I was doing this on the one hand, but I was also doing kind of more traditional, more respectable research on the other until it got to a point where I decided that it was this it was the weird shit that really interested me. So um, <laughs> I kind of stopped doing respectable research and uh, that's where I am today. And I'm really glad I did that. In fact, I wish that I'd made that decision earlier because there were people around at the time, really, like Richard Wiseman, like Susan Blackmore, who showed that it could be done, you know, and you could, you could have mm-hmm. a, a reasonably respectable career doing this stuff. But yeah, it's been interesting. It's been, a, it's been a great experience. I've met loads of interesting people. Yeah, I've loved it. Yeah. Be- being reasonably <laughs> respected, as you put it, is that why you st- invented the term animalistic psychology? Or, because I think you did coin that, right? No, no, I didn't. No, no, no. no. Okay. Um, I mean... Uh, <laughs> The situation was that, I mean, people used to obviously, understandably, uh, ask me what my area of research was. And it was a bit of a mouthful to always say, well, I'm interested in the psychology of of paranormal beliefs and ostensibly paranormal experiences. So I wanted a nice, concise term that Mm -hmm. summed that up. And uh, the term anomalistic psychology was already around. There was a very nice book by a couple of psychologists called Anomalistic Psychology. I thought that's that's the phrase for me. That's what I'm going to go for. Um, There was it wasn't a perfect solution because, well, two things. On the one hand, you know, basically then people would ask me, what's your area of research? And I'd say anomalistic psychology. And they would immediately say, what the hell is that? And I'd have to say, it's the psychology of paranormal beliefs and not sensibly. So didn't really get around that initial problem. And secondly, a lot of people can't get their tongues around it. A lot of people have struggled pronouncing it. So the number of times that I've been introduced as an animalistic psychologist, which is not quite the same, uh, that does happen quite a lot. I can attest to that. I, it took me a long time to be able to pronounce it. And I'm, I'm not claiming that I can do that properly now, but uh, close to what it's supposed to, you did it's a supposed good job. to be. You did a good job. It. I really said it, like you said. Animalistic. Yeah. But, now, but now, Andros, you know it's not about dogs, right? So it's, No, it's not about dogs. It's not about dogs Dog wagging their tails. No, no. <laughs> 
So you sent us a preview of your new book, which covers a lot of fascinating topics that you um, have investigated over the years. It's called The Science of Weird Shit. Is that true? <laughs> and it should come out on the 19th of March. Uh -huh. um, why did you decide to write the book and what is th that about? Well, I mean, the book is really... I mean, a few years back with uh, a colleague, Anna Stone, I wrote a textbook on anomalistic psychology. Yeah, I think we did a good job, but writing a textbook is very hard work. And really, I wanted to write a popular science book on anomalistic psychology. With a popular science book, obviously, you... I mean, there are lots and lots of references there in the in the footnotes at the back if people want to kind of go further into any particular topic. But you can, it's, a, it's easier to write a popular science book. You know, you kind of just concentrate on getting the message across, hopefully in an engaging way, rather than double-checking that every, every little detail that you've put in there is... You've got the right references and so on and so forth. And, yeah, and a few people had asked me over the years, why don't you write a popular science book on this stuff? The title was initially going to be Why Weird Stuff Matters, which I still think is a pretty good title, and it's a theme that mm -hmm. runs through the book that I have produced. But then, jokingly, I just said to a few people, or I might just call it the science of weird shit. And almost without exception, they said, oh, I'd buy that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that's what the title became. I didn't it know whether my uh, publisher would agree. Marketing but they idea. Did. Yeah, they agreed. <laughs> and it's, uh, it does seem to be kind of it attracted some interest. So, uh, so that's all good. Yeah, You say it's a, a popular science book and that it's easy to write. I noticed there's over 40 pages of notes and references. I, I think you've done a very thorough job. <laughs> for well, yeah, but I mean, again, book. you don't have to read those if you don't want to. That's just for the, pers the person, you know, the, I'd hope that other academics working in the area might be interested in it and they can follow up then on any of the references. But if, if a lay reader just wants to read it for enjoyment, then they don't have to bother with all the footnotes. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is that it's really based in real science. You've oh, done yeah. your homework. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of the academics of the field, you mentioned earlier a couple of big names like uh, Richard Wiseman and Sue Blackmore. I don't know if others feel the same way, but I've always felt like this kind of research is quite UK-centered. Like the greatest names in this area, at least to me, are familiar from the UK. Is that really so, or we just don't hear about others? Or if it's really so, why could it be? I mean, I mean, how could it, the UK be the epicenter of <laughs> anomalistic psychology? So that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it until you said that, but thinking about it, I th yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably true. I mean, there are other people. Well, as I mentioned already, James Alcock. You know, there are mm -hmm. other people. Uh, Ray Hyman would be another example. You know, that, and, yeah, and I'm sure I could come up with more from the US you know, if, yeah, yeah. if I just sit and scratch my head. But um, yeah, that, I mean, I mean, again, with both Ray and James, a lot of the stuff that they've done are very kind of valuable, detailed critiques of parapsychology, with a bit less emphasis on the kind of uh, psychology of belief and experiences. So I'm not quite sure why it should be the UK that seems to kind of be kind of take a lead on that to some extent. I suppose already having Richard and Sue around as kind of uh, role models to follow might be one reason, you know. It's it's a very interesting question. I don't know whether there's something maybe it's just something I think I think there are differences between the kind of skepticism in the UK And and in Europe as well, to some extent, and compared to America, I think the kind of American scepticism tends to be a little bit more 
confrontational, if you like, whereas the mm-hmm. the, 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 the the British version is a, is a bit softer. You know, so it's, it's a bit more about kind of trying to understand why other people might have those beliefs rather than just to attack the beliefs, you know? Mm. And maybe kind of uh-huh. oversimplifying things there, but I think there's some truth in that. And I can understand why, because, I mean, uh, in the UK, if you say you're an atheist then nobody bats an eyelid, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. <laughs> Whereas, you know, some states in America, if you said you're an atheist, whoa, then you are really going to face it. So, yeah. you yeah. know, th- th- it's a different context. So that, that may be a reason, I don't know. But I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely, I've gone from being what I see as, I used to be a believer in the paranormal, as I said. Uh, initially, when I discovered the joys of scepticism, I'd say I had a lot of attitudes and beliefs that I think were probably quite extreme in some ways, in terms of, I talk, I've talked in places about a kind of what I call a type one and a type two sceptic. And the type one sceptic holds all kinds of attitudes, such as anybody who claims that they have psychic powers is either con artist or uh, deranged, you know, um, mm-hmm. or all beliefs in the paranormal are psychologically damaging. You know, th- th- there's a whole range of things like that, which uh, all, all parapsychologists are totally incompetent when it comes to carrying out methodologically sound science and so on. Now, I don't believe any of those things anymore, you know. So I've kind of gone from being a, a believer to being a sceptic back towards the centre ground. I'm still very much a sceptic. I don't. If I had to bet on it, I would bet against the existence of paranormal forces. But again, I constantly say it these days, I may be wrong. New evidence may come along that makes me change my mind. And I, that, for me, is a really important part of scepticism. So, yeah. you know, I, I, and I kind of... I often find I get on better with the kind of moderates on the other side of the argument than maybe I would with some of the extremists on my side of the argument, you know. But there's a whole range of of, of sceptical beliefs, sceptical views, ways of expressing yourself, and it's fine, you know, it's a free... Con- it's a, you know, we've got free speech, we can say, we can say these things. Yeah. But, yeah, that's kind of where I am on the continuum. Yeah. So we, maybe we should mention some of the subjects that you go through in the book. I mean, there's, there's sleep paralysis, there are ghosts, talking to the dead, getting answers from the dead, <laughs> meeting with aliens, memories of previous <laughs> lives, near-death experiences, coincidences, precognition, lots of stuff, very fascinating stuff. I would hate to ask you to pick a favorite, but I, I, maybe if you want to comment on that. But also what you just said is, you can study this in two different ways for, for two different purposes, I guess. One is to find out if they're real. And the other one is to find out why, if they're not real, why do people still believe in them? Yeah, well, I think we did, we did both. We had both strands of research. So most of what we did, I think, would come under the label of anomalistic psychology, where the primary focus is on trying to come up with non-paranormal explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences. So the starting point, as a working hypothesis, we say, let's assume there are no such thing as ghosts. People aren't really being abducted by aliens. There's no such thing as telepathy and so on. Can we explain why people might think that those things do exist? And then we try and come up with explanations in terms of factors like hallucinatory experiences, false memories, the unreliability of eyewitness testimony, uh, the list goes on. And then where we can, we can put those 
explanations to the test? Can we actually carry out experiments that support our explanations? Because again, I think it's it's very easy for sceptics to come up with plausible sounding explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences. But I think it's much more powerful if you can say, oh, and we've actually done studies that show the power of suggestion is enough to explain this effect that's that's been reported, you know, and so on and so forth. So that's one strand of what we do. That's the main strand of what we do. But the other strand is directly testing paranormal claims. I mean, you know, we are doing parapsychology when we do that. We've tested mediums, we've tested dowsers, we've tested people who claim that their dreams foretell the future. I mean, again, that's first off, that relates back to what I was saying, the notion that uh, although I don't believe that these paranormal forces exist, these paranormal phenomena, I could be wrong. So I'm kind of willing to put that to the test. And, And also, I think it's kind of... In just in terms of the kind of PR aspects, skeptics have forever been accused of being closed-minded. You know, you 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 dare look at our evidence because you'd realise that we, you're wrong and you're all such fools and so. Well, I've put more time into directly testing paranormal claims than virtually all the people who direct that criticism at me. You know, <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how more open-minded you can be than to say, well, you know, we've we've carried out these tests that we try to make as fair as possible with respect to the claimants and the claim being made, and we haven't produced any evidence that supports them. That is true open-mindedness to me. Not having a position whereby essentially you're adopting a position of saying, well, there's no evidence that could ever make me change my mind. I know I'm right. So, yeah, so we so I say we do both. I mean, and in fact, you know, one of the kind of people who influenced my way of thinking about these things was uh, the late Bob Morris, the holder of the Kersler chair in parapsychology until his uh, sad demise. Because they did, that's the approach they had there. You know, although the people there were, I, I say probably mainly focused on testing to see if they could demonstrate paranormal phenomena, they also fully appreciated the kind of sceptical arguments. I mean, Richard Wiseman did his PhD there, so <laughs> enough said, you know. Um, <laughs> Bob himself was fully aware of all of the sceptical criticisms of the area. And he used to welcome sceptics into his laboratory to say, come and visit. If you can find we're doing anything wrong, tell us and we'll try and put it right and so on. So they had that twin track approach as well. But the main emphasis there was more the other way around to my own. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's a kind of good, a good way to go about trying to get a full understanding of it. I, I do uh, want to emphasize how important that I see in the changes that we've seen in the skeptical movement internationally. Since I joined the movement, I've seen this transition towards this more humane, more kind of relatable attitude that doesn't dismiss things offhand, but tries to understand. And instead of labeling people and telling them how stupid they are for believing in something, emphasizing the fact that it's really normal sometimes Mm -hmm. for people to experience things like this. I'm personally very grateful for for everything that I've learned from, from you and your colleagues as well in the last couple of years, because I can actually use that in my skeptical activism back home, whenever I speak about topics. It's really important to try to tell people not to feel the um, the shame, not to feel not to yeah. be ashamed yeah. of experiencing things. So uh, what are the things that o- over your career seemed to you the weirdest, the things that are the most out there <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> of what people believe? 
Well, I mean, there's no there's no limit to how weird people's beliefs can be. Absolutely none. So, I mean, if you, if you if by the term out there you mean how completely wacky, because let, I mean, you know, although I've just been saying, you know, we must be very careful about labelling everybody on the other side of the debate as being crazy, and we and we definitely should be careful about that. Yeah, but we are among ourselves. There, there are some crazy <laughs> ideas out there. No, I mean, you know, David Icke's notion that the world's being ruled by shape-shifting lizards. Well, you know, I don't even feel it's worth me looking at his alleged evidence for that because. It's just yeah, kind of it's yeah. too far out there, and mm-hmm. and we're kind of one of the one of the worrying things I think these days that we're all obviously very aware of is the way that these kinds of ideas, not just those kind of ideas. I don't think very many people would sign up. Even people who do believe in conspiracies, not many of them go as far as David Icke, you know. And the whole QAnon thing, yes, it is a phenomenon. Yes, it's real. But there aren't that many people who sign up to it wholesale. They might kind of buy into little parts of it, but not the rest of it, you know. I think we need to be quite careful. I think sometimes sceptics fall into the trap of exaggerating how how widespread some of these beliefs are, you know, because it feels like that, because the media give them lots and lots of coverage. But when you actually look at public opinion data and surveys you realise it's, it's been exaggerated a little bit. But it's there. And, you know, you, and you only need one kind of person to take these things seriously and to decide to, you know, take up a loaded rifle and go off and do something about yeah. it. And you've got a disaster yeah. on your hands. So we should take it very seriously. I, I think kind of turning your question around and saying, what would I see as being the kind of phenomena that I think are the biggest challenge to sceptics? That's that, I think that's quite an interesting question to ask, because I suspect that whether you ask the sceptics, informed sceptics, or the believers, the informed believers, to rank the kind of different paranormal phenomena in terms of how likely they thought they were to be true, you'd probably get a fairly similar kind of ranking coming out. I remember reading uh, Carl Sagan's um, Demon Haunted World and he cited three topics that he thought just might be true. He didn't think they were, but they just might be. He was clearly intrigued by them. One was kind of past life memories in children. One was the idea that by the power of the mind, people could influence random number generators. I think the third was probably Gansfeld stuff, if memory serves. But but they were three which I thought, yeah, I'd agree with you on that, Carl. <laughs> you know, you're probably right. Yeah, we've got critiques, we've got some kind of plausible counter-explanations, but who's right on those issues, I think, has yet to be decided. And there are, there are a few other effects within parapsychology where I've certainly not seen any kind of complete kind you know conclusive knockdown critiques from sceptics. There's something called the presentiment effect, which... You know, I do. I I could never replicate it. I can't get these results. But just because I can't doesn't mean necessarily there isn't a real effect there. Maybe I'm not doing it quite right. But the parapsychologist would point to all this stuff and say, "Look, this is a real effect. It's not 100% replicable, but you know, we we can actually replicate it a lot of the time." I never could. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> this is one of the kind of things that has again has really kind of interested me over the years. How is it? That I mean, a lot of sceptics, I think, and I thought this, this is another thing that I changed my mind on. When I first got into scepticism, I kind of was aware of of, of sceptics criticising parapsychological research on, you know, for this methodological problem and this statistical error and blah, blah, blah. And all of those things were true. But people do it to parapsychology. At that time, they do it to parapsychology, but 
not necessarily apply the same kind of stringency when they're looking at mainstream psychology or other sciences. I remember Bob, Bob Morris used to say that when parapsychologists carried out an experiment, yes, we, we, we have to kind of say, yes, we did remember to wash the test tubes before we started, you know, because <laughs> people would just assume that they were incompetent. And, and then they're not, you know. So I could read papers in parapsychology journals sometimes and you couldn't see any obvious errors. And so you could say, okay, how are they getting the positive results then? And then when I try and replicate these effects, I just don't get them. And I think I've gained a lot of insight, or at least I think I have, into that with the recent replication crisis within psychology. Because, you know, we we had a situation where the... uh, the focus was on non-replicable effects in psychology. And so the same questions arise as to, well, how, how are people getting these apparently positive results with what appear on kind of first reading to be, you know, perfectly reasonable experimental designs, proper analysis and blah, blah, blah. That's really shone a light on what's called questionable research practices, QRPs, as we like to call them in the trade. And it's not a matter of kind of blatant fraud, making the data up and and so on and so forth. It's just giving yourself the benefit of the doubt. Because when you Mm -hmm. design an experiment and collect the data and analyse the results, there are so many decision points where you could have done it this way, you could have done it that way. I'll give you just a couple of examples, and these these are relevant. Uh, you, you may remember one of the things that got me really interested in this was our attempt to replicate Daryl Bem's results on precognition, which you may remember back in 2011, or was it 2012? I think it was 2011. Professor Daryl Bem, very well-respected psychologist from Cornell University, but somebody who, unlike most psychologists, was very sympathetic towards parapsychology and was a believer in the paranormal, is a believer in the paranormal, carried out a series of studies that he published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, a very well-respected psychology journal, a mainstream psychology journal, not a parapsychology journal, Mm-hmm. Nine experiments, over a thousand participants, and the results seem to suggest that precognition is real, that people can sense future events before they happen. And obviously, you know, the sceptics were on like a ton of bricks with this criticism and that criticism. But to Bem's credit, he said, I want people to replicate these results and I'm willing to provide my software to help people to do that. And so we decided we'd give it a go. We being myself, Richard Wiseman and Stuart Ritchie. And we decided we'd each try and do an independent replication of BEM's Experiment 9, the one with the biggest effect size, so we've got the best chance of getting these results if they are real. Now, I have to confess, we did have an ulterior motive. We thought this would be a relatively straightforward way of getting a publication in a top journal (laughs) relatively (laughs) easily. We didn't expect to replicate the results. And indeed, we didn't replicate Bem's results, but we wrote up our paper, sent it into the same journal, and the editor rejected it without even sending it out for peer review. And we were about... Yeah, we kind of... um, The basic argument being, we don't publish replications. We're too important for that. He didn't say we're too important for that, but we don't publish replications. And we said, come on, this finding by Bem was covered by all the science media around the world. You know, Bem was invited onto late night chat shows in America to talk about his results. It was a big news story. If it's not a real effect, that's important. Uh, no, he would not be moved. We tried to send it to two other high impact journals, got exactly the same treatment. And this then became a story in itself. We were getting more coverage 
for the fact we couldn't get our paper peer-reviewed than I get for most of the research that I have published, which is slightly <laughs> insulting, really, but there you go. <laughs> you know? But what it did, it revealed this big problem with science publishing, that the mm-hmm. top journals, particularly in psychology, but probably in other areas as well, A, don't publish replications because they're too important for that, and B, don't publish negative findings. And we, we were providing them with a, a replication with negative findings. So they just weren't interested. You know, people go on about replication is the cornerstone of science, but you try and get a straight replication published. Or back then, you try and do it. Yeah. The, we, we sent it to the British Journal of Psychology. Uh, it was sent out for review. We were very pleased about that. One referee really liked it, said pretty much publish it as it is. The other, no, he had concerns. And we thought from the comments this second referee was making that we thought we knew who it was. We thought it was a certain Professor Daryl <laughs> Bem of Cornell University. Uh, clear <laughs> conflict of interest, I would have said, you know. And we pointed this out. We asked Daryl Bem and he said, yes, it was him. And <laughs> we said to the editor, just send it out to a third referee for the you know, final, de- make, a, make a decision on it. No, wouldn't do it. So eventually we published in an open access journal, uh, PLOS One. And mm-hmm. that, that turned out to be a good move because people were interested in this. I mean, we're getting about a thousand views a day at one point, apparently, you know, which is a huge number. Since it was open paper. access, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then that fed into the replication, the issues where people were already discussing the kind of problems of replication in psychology. There were people who looked at Ben's results and said, I mean, I, and I don't go along with this, but there were some people that said, well, well clearly this can't, these can't be really facts. So how has this got through the refereeing process? Why has this been published? Now, I don't agree with that. It had gone through the refereeing process in the same way as any other paper. In fact, I think it had six referees. You know, they're really... So I don't agree, I don't agree with that. You know, I think that's kind of that's essentially scientific censorship if you say, oh, well, if you get results that support a paranormal hypothesis, we'll never publish them. But it did raise interesting issues about, well, what's going on? And then, of course, there was the the wider context of mainstream psychological effects that have been in the textbook for decades, and they didn't replicate. And so suddenly everybody became very worried and very aware of, well, what's going on? How do you explain this? And the explanation is largely in terms of these questionable research practices. And it's, Mm -hmm. again, I mean, I can look back now on stuff that I have published and realise that I probably did engage in those questionable research practices because you didn't realise you'd doing anything wrong. Let me give you a couple <laughs> of examples. I know I'm going off on a bit of a monologue here, but I'm on a roll. Let me go yeah. with it. <laughs> please do, please do. <laughs> um, these are, I mean, a couple of my favourite examples. One of them is something called optional stopping. Okay, so you've designed your experiment. You, you're going to you're aiming to, to to run say a hundred participants through your experimental procedure and then do your analysis. It's very human when you've got maybe 50 participants run to have a quick peek at the data, see if anything's happening. You know, are the results coming out the way you'd you'd expect them to and you want them to? If you find you've already got a significant result, it's the most human thing in the world to think, well, I'm going to stop here and write this up. Why would I Uh I waste my time running another 50 subjects? The thing is, if you had a result that was hovering around the 0.05 level of statistical significance, then you think, oh, right, I'll carry on to the end and then I'll get some more data and this will probably come out. You're giving yourself two bites of the cherry. Doesn't seem like the biggest crime in the world, is indeed isn't the biggest crime in the world, but it's pushing you in the direction of a spuriously significant result. I mean, another thing you might do is you get all your data in, you analyse your, your, your results, then you don't get the effect you were hoping for. It's only then that you might think, I'll have a look at the raw data 
If you'd got the effects you wanted, you'd probably just write that up and send it off. Mm-hmm. If you haven't, you look at the raw data. You kind of th- you realise there's a data point here that's way out from everybody else's. You know, oh, that's the guy who came in last Tuesday. I think he was drunk. I don't think he understood the instructions. You know, I'm going to take my away. I'm going to take my eraser <laughs> out and get rid of that data point. Oh, look, I've got the effect I wanted. You know, again, you wouldn't have done that if. But I mean, again, doesn't seem like the biggest crime in the world so there's all these kinds of factors that can come into play i think one of the nicest illustrations of this was a paper where they started off by saying everything we report in this paper is totally honest we're not making anything up and this is based on real data that we did collect and we did analyze in the same in the way that we say we analyze it they then went on to produce what appeared to be significant results for a very unlikely effect a highly improbable effect followed by results that seemed to support an impossible hypothesis, <laughs> Lit- literally logically impossible, that by listening to certain kinds of music, it would actually make you younger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like what? that. I like that. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'd, yeah I'd, I'd buy some of that, you know. But the second part of the paper was kind of, you know, revealing the tricks. Say, well, how did we do this? Well, they did all sorts of things. They they collected data on lots and lots and lots of different variables so that they could analyse the data they got every which way till they got a significant effect coming out. And then they don't bother to tell you about all the additional variables that weren't important for that analysis, that weren't relevant. And indeed, there's evidence that Bem himself used to engage in these kind of practices and probably in this ser- this long, you know, this series of studies that he published. Yeah, just to give you but one example, he says in, the, in a footnote in that paper that got all the attention that it was decided in advance that each experiment would involve at least 100 participants. His experiment nine, the one with the biggest effect size, has got 50. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of there in black and white, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was really interesting. And it made me realise there's, there's something in parapsychology called the, 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 the sheep-goat effect. There's various different ways in which it manifests, but one is the, the very fact that sceptics like me, when they look for a paranormal effect don't tend to get it, whereas people who believe in the paranormal are much more likely to get it. You can think, what's the possible explanations for this? I mean, you know, it's it's too simplistic to say, oh, well, they're just making up their data, you know. Mm. But in the same way that there are spurious effects that have been reported in psychology, this is bound to also be happening in parapsychology. If I run an experiment, a parapsychological experiment, and I get no significant results, that's it. That's what I was expecting anyway, so I'll stop. If I was running a similarly designed experiment in mainstream psychology and I didn't get the effects I wanted, this this is before I realised the worries about questionable research practices, I'd have probably engaged in some of those practices. I'd have looked at the raw data. I'd have tried analysing it this way or that way and chopping the data up in different ways, you know, and not thinking I was doing anything wrong at all. And so I think that's why, that's what the parapsychologists will do, you know. We can get around a lot of these problems by pre-registration, where you say in advance before you collect your data, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to analyse it, and then you stick to it. And and to be fair to parapsychologists, I think they were ahead of the game on this. They were, do, they were trying to do this before a lot of mainstream <laughs> sciences. Mm. Because probably they needed to work harder to earn exactly. the, the yeah. respect of the field. That's right. right. They, they knew the sceptics would be down on them like a ton of bricks going through, you know, picking up on this error, picking up on that error. Mm. And <laughs> so, I mean, the European Journal of Parapsychology used to... I, I think it seemed to fizzle out, but for a time they had this policy whereby you send them the introduction and the method section of your study before you start collecting data. And on that basis, they'd say whether they would publish it or not. 
So, you know, the results came out negative. Fine, they still publish it. Now, that's really enlightened, mm-hmm. you know, and I think these kind of practices are now coming into mainstream psychology and other areas a bit more but it's been quite a painful lesson you know it's been a painful lesson but one with kind of serious implications for parapsychology as well hmm. right nice. monologue over ask me another question <laughs> <laughs> I, I was afraid we wouldn't get you to one, talk maybe yeah. one more you know just one more <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> Uh, let's dig deeper in right (laughs) yes and i think you talked a lot about like the replication crisis and something that we skeptics say often is you cannot prove a negative right Mm -hmm. and in the book you point out that this is not true but that some things are impossible to disprove (laughs) can you maybe elaborate a bit on that yes sure i mean i mean that, that that kind of notion that you can't prove a negative yeah again in real life, yes, you can. You know, I, think, I think the example I give in the book is if I say that there's a, a perfectly normal tiger living in my bath. Actually, that's not a good example. Let's get to the kind of things that you, you can't disprove. I cannot prove that ESP does not exist. Because even though to date I've not seen any evidence that would convince me, you know, looked at in the kind of overall context of all the mixed findings and all the methodological issues and blah, blah, blah. I don't think ESP exists. You know, maybe we're just not looking in the right way and if we, it's just around the next corner. So you could never, ever kind of disprove that. What you can do is try to come up with alternative explanations along the lines of anomalistic psychology and see if you can produce evidence that supports those kind of explanations. And to the degree that you can do that, then I think it adds weight to the argument that ESP probably does not exist. But you know, science is not about certainty. You know, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of Popper on that. You know, it's about kind of saying, well, on the basis of the evidence as it now stands, this is what I believe, mm-hmm. and that's that's as far as you can go. You, the evidence may change in the future. Yeah, but where, where's the line? Where, where do you, when do you stop investigating something like ESP? Well, obviously, you haven't stopped. No, no, no. Well, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, at the end of the day, it's down to practical things like, um, you know, who's going to fund this research? Hmm. And for some reason, they seem to think it was a more worthwhile effort to kind of find a vaccine for COVID than to investigate whether ghosts exist. Think of I mean, that. Go figure, you know, it's strange. <laughs> um, I'm, quite, I'm very much in favour of if people want to spend their time and resources testing paranormal hypotheses, parapsychological hypotheses, in the best, most well-controlled way that they can, fine, get on with it. But at the end of the day, we're all making decisions about where's the most fruitful place, area for me to apply my efforts. You know, what's going what's to kind of give the biggest payoff in terms of learning new knowledge and understanding things better? And so generally... I have focused on the kind of more sceptical side. And the thing is, I mean, you know, we do have effects there that do replicate pretty reliably. I mean, another criticism that is, you know, I think one of the main criticisms of parapsychology is the failure to come up with kind of replicable effects, strongly replicable effects. You know, and and the the parapsychologists not unreasonably point out, yeah, but there's there's very few of us, you know, (laughs) the the number of person hours that goes into doing parapsychology is a mere drop in the ocean, say, compared to other areas of, of psychology and certainly medicine and other areas of science. And so is it fair 
to say, oh, well, you've not produced the definitive proof yet. And they've got a point there. But there are even fewer anomalistic psychologists. And we do have some replicable effects. You know, this kind of research has been kind of done in a kind of trickle. You know, there's not been very much of it until fairly recently. Things are picking up a little bit. But it's still a tiny, tiny subspecialism. Yeah. But what we have or you have found really is not any proof of ESP or near-death experiences or paranormal stuff. But what you have done is you've found a lot of real psychology, really. Mm -hmm. How does the human mind work and how do we get ourselves into believing in quote-unquote weird shit? Okay. So, so yeah. name one or two of the most important findings that this kind of research has come up with. Well, I think one of the... Um I mean, again, I, I've got a 400-page-plus book out in Pontus, which is what call this. But, no. Read the I mean, book, man. I mean, a, a theme that runs through anomalistic psychology is the theme of cognitive biases, okay? Our, our cognitive systems are pretty damn amazing. You know, AI is kind of catching up, but, you know, we're still, at the moment, just slightly ahead, I'd say. But we we do know that our cognitive systems are prone to certain systematic biases under certain conditions. We will sometimes misperceive things, we will misinterpret things, we will misremember things. And I think a lot of these cognitive biases are relevant to understanding why sometimes people might have experiences which they think can only be explained in paranormal terms But actually, there are more plausible alternatives when you understand a bit more about these biases. I mean, just to give you one example, we're all really poor at probabilistic reasoning. There are lots of situations mm. in everyday life where you have to make decisions based on probabilities and we're just not very good at it. Now, why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because for a lot of paranormal claims... The obvious counter explanation from a skeptic is to say, well, maybe that was just a coincidence. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm thinking <laughs> here about things like telephone telepathy or precognitive dreams. You have a dream about something and then a few days later something happens in life that bears a striking correspondence to your dream. But when you step back and think about it, there are over eight billion hours on the planet. Even if we only remember on average one dream per night, that's a huge number of opportunities for those kind of coincidences to take place. And if they didn't take place, that would be spooky. That would be really weird. That would take some explaining. <laughs> yeah. The fact that they do take place, it's just what you'd expect. Having said that, if you're the person that has the dream that corresponds to the future event with a probability of millions and millions to one against you're going to be pretty damn convinced that your dream was precognitive. And, you know, it's it's that kind of reasoning. Another thing, you know, we've focused a lot in recent years on memory, problems with memory, both in terms of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony and susceptibility to false memories. And both of those seem to be very relevant. We know that a lot of the kind of personality variables that correlate with susceptibility to false memory also correlate with belief in and reports of paranormal experiences. So, yeah, there seems to be a case there that can be made that maybe some of the time people are reporting what they genuinely believe were paranormal experiences, but maybe they didn't happen at all, you know? Yeah. When it comes to eyewitness testimony, historically, the very first systematic study of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony was carried out in the context of a faked seance back in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. There was a guy called S.J. Davey who initially had gone to seances and 
was convinced by what he saw. He thought it was the spirits. And then he got wind of the fact that all these effects were achieved by trickery. He practiced the trickery himself, put on his own seance. And what he did that nobody else had done was to get people to write down afterwards in as much detail and as accurately as possible what they had just experienced. And it revealed that people misremembered things in really (laughs) important ways that if you'd have accepted their account as given, you would not have been able to explain what was going on in anything other than a paranormal way. But that's not how it happened. They misremembered the order of things, who was present, which objects were touched, which were, you know, so on and so forth. You know, it's interesting that all of those kind of factors come in. And then, of course, you've got the weird experiences that people have. I mean, sleep paralysis is one of our major topics that we've, we've done a mm-hmm. lot of research on. It's a very common experience. A lot of people have it. But you can understand, particularly if you already believe in the supernatural, if you had that experience, you didn't know there was a medical and scientific literature out there on sleep paralysis, you would probably go for a supernatural explanation. So there's a lot of different factors that come into play. But I think at the end of the day, we can provide plausible, sometimes even proven counter explanations. More often than not, it's kind of plausible. But then we can try and kind of produce evidence to support those plausible type of explanations. Is that what you set out to do with the book, to educate the general public into knowing more about all these so that they're going to be less susceptible to these errors? I would hope so. I mean, I think, again, I mean, I taught, as I say, I taught this course for many, many years at Goldsmiths. And part of it really was a kind of smuggling in critical thinking skills. Yeah, because because this this stuff provides the kind of perfect vehicle, I think, for the teaching of critical thinking skills. For a start, it's a topic that most people find engaging, most people are interested in. You know, it's the kind of thing that people talk about in the pub or at dinner parties. And, you know, whether you're a believer or a sceptic, people really get stuck in on topics like this. So it's already very engaging material. But then you can talk about all of these kind of cognitive biases. You can talk about the kind of reasoning errors that we're prone to. There's a whole range of things that are relevant to critical thinking. Why some forms of evidence are to be trusted more than others. You know, in most people, what's the thing they trust the most? Their own personal experience. Well, as a psychologist, I'd say, uh uh-uh. Don't. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we can all misperceive things. We can all misremember things. We can all have hallucinatory experiences. It's not the best guide. Yeah, the best guide is data coming from well-controlled experiments. <laughs> but, I mean, again, it doesn't carry the same weight for so many people. And this is, you know, one of the tragedies when you come to complementary and alternative medicine. You know, on the one yeah. hand, you've got the masses of dry data showing that the MMR vaccine did not cause autism. On the other page, you've got a crying mother. And what carries the most impact for most people? It's the emotional it's the side. Yeah. 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 And, and again, yeah. We, need to, we need to kind of try and learn from that. I think we can. I think some people are better at it than others. In terms of trying to engage people emotionally, as well as just presenting the facts, we've got to kind of try and get them interested in, on an emotional level as well. And, and some people are very good at doing that. So your current project is coming out on the 19th of March. Now, of course, we're all wondering what will be your next project. <laughs> I've given this some thought. I mean, I'm, one of the things that I'm kind of seriously considering is the possibility of doing a book that just focuses just on the kind of false memory aspect of mm-hmm. things. It's such an interesting topic for in its own right, but it's something you can cover from lots of different angles. 
So, for example, I obviously already cover this in, in, in the book that's coming out on the 19th of March, but you've got, I mean, false memories, as far as I'm concerned, are a very relevant factor whether you're dealing with claims of alien abduction, past life mm-hmm. regression, are certainly kind of people recovering memories of being the victims of satanic ritual abuse. So that's all really interesting in its own right. You've got the kind of wider context there, the fact that we are all susceptible to false memories. We probably all have memories that in our heads feel like real memories of something that actually really did happen to us, but it didn't. Or if it did, it didn't happen in the way that we recall it. So there's that kind of wider context as as well. And then there's the way that some of these aspects are are fed into kind of conspiracy theories, because obviously, certainly with with respect to um, satanic ritual abuse and so on, you know, that's a big part of the kind of QAnon conspiracies and looking at how all those things interrelate. So I think, I mean, I'm not, this is very much at the kind of just thinking it over stage. (laughs) I I want to see how well the first book does first before I decide to kind of sacrifice several more years of my life to writing another well uh, i hope you do i hope you will write another book because okay. this one was fascinating great thank mm-hmm. you since we are the european skeptics podcast we need to ask this question is there any other language edition that is coming out of the book anytime soon do you know of any translation projects going on well i do but i'm not sure how useful it's going to be to the european skeptics because the people who bought the foreign language rights so far are china mm-hmm. and nice. south korea <laughs> so okay <laughs> well so good, good for that. them good for them i hope they're setting I'm, an I'm example hoping, i think so and I, obviously i'm hoping that uh, there will be some translations but they're the only they're the only two countries so far that have actually taken this so up. far i mean this is before the books even come out you know so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's promising that once the book is out that we may well get other other translations mm-hmm. but but uh, there might be any but some of our listeners connected to publishers in their yeah. own countries so uh, yeah, how yeah. does this work technically they get in touch with your publisher or yourself or how, how does that work they would get in touch. I mean, if they get in touch with me, I will kind of pass the query along the line to mm-hmm. my agent and to my publishers, and and sure. they kind of take it from there. I mean, I must admit, it's kind of quite nice. This is the first time I've done a kind of popular science book, and one of the really nice things is that you can just be kind of sitting there watching TV or something, and you, my phone pings, and I kind of, oh, look at an email, and I have a look, and, oh, yeah, yeah. China want to buy the rights. This will mean X in your bank account. <laughs> yes, please. You know, yes, please. I'll, I'll have that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but, uh, so, yes, please translate it into all European languages. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's make this a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, it's been fantastic talking to you again, Chris. Good to catch up. And uh, as I said, fantastic book. So also I need to mention, we will meet again in a couple of months' time in the, at the European Skeptics Congress in France, in Lyon. So, and yes. you're a speaker there. So what can we expect from that talk? It's basically going to be, a, I think, a kind of um, a bit of an overview of, of anomalistic psychology, in case anybody doesn't know, and, and really kind of just focusing on the kind of stuff that we've done. When I say we, I mean the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit. Mm-hmm. And even in the, you know, the time available, it will be very much a kind of whistle-stop tour of just kind of some of the highlights of the research that we've done over the years. Hopefully make it kind of uh, a bit interactive if we can, because I always like those kind of presentations. But, uh, you know, as you can tell from what I'm saying, I haven't actually written it yet. <laughs> but, uh, 
<laughs> yes. I'll, don't worry, I'll have it written before I come. <laughs> I'm not worried. <laughs> Meaning, okay. even if you, even if we wing it, I think you have enough experience. You have enough experience, and in both uh, giving lectures and uh, on the field, so uh, it, it will be fascinating. Yeah, and I encourage all our listeners, of course, also to go to the ESC and meet yeah. Chris mm-hmm. and Definitely. a number of other people just as interesting as him and us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to seeing you guys again. So yeah, great, that'll be fun. Great, great. Yeah, and if people can't catch you in Lyon, where can people go to find out more about your work and about your activities? Well, I'll be uh, I'll be in Vegas in October. He said, Ooh, what? Um, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, and yeah." So I'm looking forward to to that as well. I'll be and especially I'll be be able to hang out with my with my good friend Professor Wiseman. Mm. Um, <laughs> and basically, at the moment, I'm kind of just doing talks wherever. <laughs> People ask me to do them, as long as they can kind of cover my expenses, because obviously I'm trying to promote the book. Another thing that's happening imminently is there's there's been a very successful programme uh, and podcast in the UK called Uncanny. And it was so successful that last year we did a theatre tour of the UK And we're doing another one. We've got one coming up. So I just yeah, just yesterday I kind of finalised the venues and the dates that I'll be doing for that. So that's going to be fun as well. But yeah, I'm doing lots of talks. If you run a branch of Skeptics in the Pub, especially if it's in the UK, because that's obviously less expensive mm-hmm. in terms of travel expenses and so on and so forth, please do feel free to get in touch and I'm happy to come and do a talk for your group. And if any European groups can also afford me, I'm very cheap, then um, again, please do get in touch. <laughs> so how can people get in touch? Like, um, do you have a, a blog, a website? Uh, I'm very easy to find on the internet. I mean, my email address is c.french at gold.ac.uk. Uh, I do have a website and it's very much in need of updating, <laughs> like, every, like everything else in my life. But that's that's uh, profchrisfrench.com. Awesome. So check that out. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Great. All right. Well, for a retired man, you are quite busy, but uh, we love that fact and uh, and we love following your work. So, Professor Chris French, thank you very much for you. Uh, for joining us once again. Thank you. And looking forward to the next time that we meet. Great. Looking forward to it too. In Leon, but uh, whenever it happens, it's always fun. Take okay. care. Take care. Yes. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. So this was a lot of fun. So I can't wait to listen to his talk at the European Skeptics Congress as well. well once he's written it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last time I heard a talk that he's given was at Goldsmith College in London when I was in town and I saw that his talk was on. And oh, yeah, wow, that was that's always so educational, so much fun. And we ended up going on a pop quiz right after that with uh, Deborah Hyde and Chris. And it was, again, a lot of fun. Mm. So uh, <laughs> French is just a lovely Yeah, guy. he's fantastic. And one of the smartest people out there. Yes. And he really just unifies this whole, like, there are a lot of people who are really smart. And there are a lot of people who are really good public speakers. But he's both. It's just yeah. amazing. Yes, yes. 
Right. Yeah. So he mentioned that he's giving lots of talks and whenever he is invited, he accepts the invitation. So yeah, do yourself a favor and invite him. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be Yes. Good. Or as we said in the interview, you should go to Lyon in France and, and see him yeah. live there. He is invited as one of three speakers to talk about the psychology of beliefs. And he is the first speaker and he will talk about his 25 years of research. Yeah, I'm I'm so looking forward to meeting him there. Yeah, likewise. All right. But uh, until then, we will have a lot of shows to offer to our listeners as well. But this one is coming to its end. So I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. They slap. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I don't think ESP exists. But I but can't. We do. You are we on do. the show now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah, I know you do. I mean, and this is the real ESP experience. Um, but uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs>